Well, Ephesians chapter 2. Please take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And for our study this morning, we're going to be looking at brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, we're slowly making our way through this chapter because it is so dense and practical with implication and application for us. And I think that you're going to find this one today of particular um, interest as the Lord directs it to our own application. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 13. Let me read those for us. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed by, in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Division among people is normal and it's expected. People divide over every conceivable opinion and conviction. They divide over politics. They divide over athletic teams. Some divide over race. Others divide over social status. Blue-collar and white-collar occupations can divide people. Some older folks would rather be away from the younger people. And some younger people desire to be with each other and avoid the older folks. There are all sorts of reasons that people divide about. What's tragic is when division invades and influences people in the church. When you read your Bible carefully, you can easily see that disunity among God's own people has always been a unique sorrow and a special heartbreak to the Lord himself. God hates disunity among his people. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed about the unity of his disciples and prayed against disunity three different times in the high priestly prayer of John 17, John 17, 11, John 17, 21, John 17, 22, the Lord asked God the Father that the disciples would be one with each other and be perfected in unity. I was at a conference recently and uh, the speakers of this conference were on a panel and I, I was sitting on the panel with four or five other guys And the moderator asked us all a question, and he said this, what do you think today is the greatest threat to the church? I wonder how you would answer that. What is the greatest threat today to the church? Now, we could answer in a lot of different ways, 
but I was a bit shocked and saddened when he came to me that my answer was almost a reflex, especially after the last year and a half. And my answer was, disunity is the greatest threat to the church. Opinions about COVID-19 and its collateral implications have crept into the church, and some have taken hold as strongly as doctrinal convictions themselves and theology as articulated. Those who are for the wearing of masks are passionate about that. Those who are against the wearing of masks and opposed to that are passionate about that. There are pro-vaccine folks and anti-vaxxers. There are social distancers and people happy to be packed in like sardines and hugging like there's no tomorrow. And we have all those in our church. And I have the emails to prove it. (laughs) What's heartbreaking for us as pastors and elders and leaders in the church is that some of these opinions have caused relational stresses and strains in our own local body. No, MRBC has not suffered the factions that some other churches have. We've had some people leave over our views on some of these things. But make no mistake, critics and their opinions on these matters are informed by the news cycle and social media by their own favorite scientists and not by Scripture. Scripture transcends anything for which Satan could cause us disunity in the church. And it's heartbreaking to see. It's, I I would just tell you, if you had rewound the tape a year and a half ago and said, you're going to have trouble, not you, Rick, but you pastors are going to have trouble in your churches by the wearing of surgical masks and the taking of a vaccine, and people are going to be mad, mad at you, mad at each other. They're going to leave the church. They're going to, I would have laughed at you and said, you're, 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 you're joking. And that's what Satan has done. We have weathered that storm so well at Mission Road because you are spiritually healthy and your godliness has been exemplary. Enter the book of Ephesians. Over the next two and a half chapters, Paul is going to take direct aim at the issue of disunity, not so much in his causes, but its result, and back our minds into what causes disunity, and you have to deal with it. To be frank, these are going to be very uncomfortable weeks if you have strong opinions that are ah-biblical. I didn't say non-biblical, ah-biblical, outside of the pages and the covers of your Bible. Paul's going to take direct aim at the issue of unity and division in our church, in the church. And here's the guiding, overriding principle he's going to use to guide us. What you believe about Christ should make a difference and how you relate to others who believe in Christ. i say that again. What you believe about Christ should make a difference in how you relate to others who also believe in Christ. No matter your differences with them, social, racial, cultural, economic, political, or even medical. 
And throughout the next chapter and a half, specifically chapters 2 and 3, we're going to continue to learn that the key to unity, the key to crushing division in the church, the key to maintaining a healthy unity in the church is a deep and convinced understanding of the wonder of your own salvation. Are you amazed at your salvation? If you are, that will guide and direct you through any disunifying factor. If you cannot be guided, if you are finding yourself looking down on someone, feeling judgmental about someone, well, they think that and I think this and they're wrong. If that's what's governing your relationships in the church, according to what we're going to study today, you have forgotten the grace of God that brought you into his kingdom. Folks, this is, there's no other way to say it. This is serious stuff. And Paul has written to the Ephesians and God has ordained that we study this issue in this season of our cultural experience and of the life of our church. And we, we're not going to try to avoid it. But he's going to step on our air, ho- air hose a few times. And that's okay. The place Paul begins is exactly where we just said. And that's understanding your salvation. Now, our proposition for today might throw you off a bit. We're going to look at four reminders of the wonder of Gentile salvation. I know as soon as I say that, some people are going to push like eject in their attention span and just say, ah, Jews, Gentiles, heard that. There's nothing in this for me. Let me tell you a couple things. First of all, we have a church that is predominantly made up of Gentile believers. We have some people who have a Jewish background, a Jewish heritage. We are so thankful that you're here. There are people, though, I've I've been to a church specifically in Israel that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and this is exactly specifically applicable to them. But the principles that Paul outlines here about how believers of different backgrounds and different uh, uh, cultural convictions all come to bear on us. But specifically what we should own as most of us as Gentile believers, non-Jews who believed in Christ, man, he takes direct aim at our hearts. And he reminds us of the, of the wonder of being a Gentile and being saved. And I think that if you're like me and you start looking into the depths of this, you will be refreshingly amazed that as a non-Jew... We have a Jewish Messiah, and he is our Savior. So let's dial into this. There are four reminders of the wonder of Gentile salvation. And if you are Jewish, praise God. But in the next paragraph, Paul's going to talk about your heritage as well. (laughs) He addresses us all. The first reminder is this. Remember the dilemma of alienation. This whole passage is about the Gentiles who were alienated from God, from the gospel, from Christ, from the access points and the graces that God gave for us to understand his truth. We experienced alienation. He says, listen, first thing I want you to do, remember the dilemma of alienation, verse 11. Therefore, remember, stop right there. Anytime you see therefore, you must ask, what is it? Therefore. He's going back to the first 10 verses. And he started the first three verses to say, look, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's universal. Jew and Gentile, everyone. You were also under the influence of a, of a godless worldview, 
under the influence of Satan himself and under the influence of your own sinful impulses. You put all that in the blender and you have a, a stiff arm in God's face. Everyone is born a child of God's wrath, expecting the, the judgment of God, not the grace of God. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together by believing the gospel. We were saved by grace, and that grace was through faith in verse 8. Not as our own works would contribute to, but God himself. Therefore, based on the fact that every person is saved by grace through faith, therefore, key, key verb, remember. Remember. One of the key imperatives in the New Testament God tells us to remember things that he knows we are tempted to forget. Therefore, remember that formerly, before the gospel, you. Now, you have to ask, who's you? He tells us. The Gentiles in the flesh, those who were not born Jewish, who didn't grow up in the synagogue or temple worship, He's talking specifically to Gentile believers. And there is application for us here as such. Therefore, remember that formerly, before your conversion, you Gentiles in the flesh. Now, it doesn't take long to realize that the Bible is a very Jewish book. You have to understand Judaism and God's expectation and promises to the Jews to understand the redemptive trajectory of God's word. The Old Testament is a chronicle of how God chose a people for himself, the Jewish nation. He began this by choosing a certain man named Abraham. Good class. The origin of the Jews goes back to Abraham himself. God promised or God covenanted. He, he made this, this contract, this promise, this covenant with Abraham. He covenanted with Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be his own people. He told Abraham, your people are going to be mine. Also, that they would be used to reach the nations, to reach the world with the knowledge of him. That's the Old Testament good news, the gospel. And those who are not in Abraham's line are called Gentiles. Jews, Abraham's line, Gentiles, those of us who are not. Now, knowing a fair amount about our church, I am very aware that we are a local body made up mostly of Gentile believers. You may have Jewish blood coursing through your vein, and if so, praise God. In the end, it won't matter. But it does matter in coming to our understanding of the gospel. As such, the passage before us is directly aimed at Gentiles, non-Jews, who believe. Now, what is he talking about? He says, first, remember. Remember based on the fact that you've been saved by grace through faith in the first ten verses. Remember your former state before your conversion. For a Gentile believer, this is especially remarkable because we, think about this, this seems so obvious, but you have to say it. We are non-Jewish believers in the Jewish Messiah 
who is our Savior. The word Christ, when you say Jesus Christ, you know what the word Christ means? The anointed one, the long-expected Messiah. You're saying Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, when you say Christ. He's the anointed one, a name that shows that he was indeed the anointed, long-awaited king and deliverer for the Jews. For centuries, the Jewish people had looked for, a, for their promised Messiah, the deliverer who would usher in a kingdom of peace and prosperity. Psalm 110, Isaiah 32, uh, verses 1 to 8, Isaiah 61, Amos 9, all talk about this great expectation. And remember what... Remember what Peter was applauded for? I mean, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth did say a few good things, right? Up in Caesarea Philippi, he, he calls his disciples together and he says, okay, guys, tell me the rumor mill. Uh, who do people say that I am? Oh, you're not going to believe this. Some say you're Elijah, reincarnate. Some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Which is interesting because they both were alive at the same time. Anyway, that's for another time. Then he says, okay, who do you say I am? Peter steps up, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Jewish Messiah. Why is that a big deal? Because he's the Gentile Savior as well as the Jewish Savior. Here's the dilemma in the first century church. How can Gentiles who believe the gospel and Jews who embrace their long-awaited Messiah coexist, co-minister, co-fellowship in the same local body, in the same church? Paul clearly understood that the Jews and Gentiles had nothing to do with each other. They dressed differently. They ate differently. They worshiped differently. Their calendars were different. Their culture was different. However, both Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ, who believe the gospel, have been supernaturally united into biblical siblings by the blood of Christ. So here, Paul wants to highlight the massive religious and cultural divide between the Jews and Gentiles. It was so massive, they called each other names. Now, I'm I'm going to reserve the graphic nature of this this is so sanitized when it says the circumcision and the uncircumcision the so-called it's basically the the foreskins and the foreskinless that's what it's that's what it means and they were used as derision terms against each other they were mocking each other by using this the jews calling the gentiles you uncircumcised gentiles and the gentiles saying really what did you do and why they didn't understand each other on that It became a dividing point. So much so that that was their nickname, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, the Jews and the Gentiles. Terms of derision used by both groups against one another. And here he goes after the Gentiles' standing and situation before God, before the cross. Yes, Ephesians 2, 3 to 1 talks about the universal application of all of us being dead in our sins. Yes, that extends to everyone. But Paul wants us to know as Gentiles that we, are you ready for this, were worse off than the Jews. 
way worse off. Distant from God. Needing to be brought near. He uses this circumcision because they would call each other that and the uncircumcision, but the signature of Judaism has always been circumcision. We studied Romans chapter 4. Remember, I had a strange sermon entitled Salvation is Not by Surgery. Circumcision didn't make anyone saved, and some people leaned too much on that. Paul said, before I was a Christian, this is what I, I told people about myself. He gives a list, and he says in Philippians 3, 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day. It's a point of pride. And one of the first challenges that faced the early church were Jews who believed the gospel who were insisting that Gentiles who came into faith in the Jewish Messiah should be, if they were Gentiles, what? Circumcised. It makes sense. There was quite a discussion between Peter and Paul that erupted in Galatians 2. You can see that also the Jerusalem Council was about this in Acts chapter 15. Paul's point here, though, is very simple. We as Gentile believers are to remember our dilemma of being alienated from God because we were not blessed with the privileges of Jews, which just happened to be as a signature of their circumcision. Now, now you say, well, I don't really understand that. Paul knows that. That's why he details what's next. Remember the causes of this alienation. You were far off from God because you were a Gentile. Why? He answers that in verse 12. Remember the causes of such alienation from God. The New American Standard supplies the word remember again. It's, it's, it's a good translation point to put in there, but he, it's not there in the original, but it's implied. Remember, okay, remember your former state, but also remember this. Why? That you were at the time, that time, before your conversion, separate from Christ. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. What's so great about being Jewish? And what's so disadvantageous about being a Gentile? You just heard it. The Jews were not separate from Christ. I know what you're thinking. What he's saying is separate from access to the the promises and everything that was coming in Christ. The Jews were not excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Their citizenship put them in a special privileged position because of the temple, the synagogue, and being stewards of the word, the oracles of God, and strangers to the covenants of promise. They were not strangers. They understood that. Paul shows this to us by dealing what's great about being a Gentile, what's tough about being, excuse me, what's great about being a Jew, what's tough about being a Gentile, by showing what the Gentiles missed out on by not being Jewish. Specifically, we were those who experienced separation, exclusion, and estrangement. If you want a little sub-outline on point two, it's separation, exclusion, and estrangement. Let's look at these three conditions and these three phrases that he uses. Separation. Remember that you were at that time, before your conversion, separate from Christ. Not only were the Gentiles, not only were we as Gentiles, separate from Christ personally and spiritually, it was the case that, that was the case with Jews as well, by the way, 
But Gentiles had no national or reasonable expectation of a coming Savior or a coming Messiah, as the Gentiles did. Now, this is where it gets really awkwardly practical for us today. Gentiles then were not looking for a Savior for their souls. You know where the Gentile hope was? It's real easy to read in secular literature this day. You know where the Gentile hope was in the time of Paul and Christ? Politics. The government. Their hope was that the local and the broader governing authorities, the political authorities, could bring hope and peace and satisfaction. Does that sound so dissimilar to today? The hope of Israel was the promised Messiah. The Gentiles had no such hope. So they began looking to Facebook and Fox News for the, I mean, this is first century. I shouldn't say that. They, uh, that's us. Um, they began looking at all sorts of places for hope instead of God. And you can't blame them. Where else are they going to look? Their own idols? They were separate from the hope of a coming Messiah and Savior for their souls. Secondly, exclusion. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. Being a part of Israel had untold privileges baked into being Jewish, baked into being a citizen of Israel. They had the law of God. They had the privilege of temple worship. They had the teachings of the synagogue. They had rabbis who could teach them the oracles of God. They had access to God and his revelation. Instead of sharing that, which was the intent from Abraham, God said, I'm going to make a group of people out of your descendants and they should be a light to the nations. They hoarded it to themselves. Gentiles then were limited in their access to the worship of God because they were not Jews. And Paul says, remember, that's what you were like. Remember that. But there's one other one. He says, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. That's estrangement. Strangers. We were estranged from the covenants of promise. This is an interesting phrase because it's plural. And it's... It's actually redundant because the covenant is a promise. The covenants of promises. The promised contracts that God made through promise is what he's saying. Like what? Like the covenant that was made with uh, God and Adam where he said, I will send a seed of your wife to crush the head of Satan. They were a stranger to that. Like the covenant made to Noah, which gave hope that God would not judge the world again through water. Just as a little practical aside, can I just encourage you, especially with your kids, when you see a rainbow, would you use it for what it's worth? It's not just a good nursery theme. When you see a rainbow, stop and tell your soul and stop and talk to your wife or your husband or your kids or your friends and saying. Whoa, whoa. There's not going to be a universal flood again. 
Oh, there'll be local floods. There, are, there always have been. But it's not going to go over Mount Everest. And be amazed at God's grace and kindness. That's the Noetic covenant. There's the covenant to Abraham that gave hope that a Savior was coming to the nations brought through Abraham's seed. There's the Davidic covenant. That's a promise made to David to give hope that the true king of the world was yet to come and confidence could be placed on him and his coming, not on any ruler or political system in this world. We talk about those things and we're thankful. The Gentiles at this time didn't have these. Just, just as a, another footnote, can you just, can you praise God you have the Old Testament as a Christian? We know the covenants of promise. We understand them. We have an Old and a New Testament. How privileged we are to have an Old Testament we can study and have the exact identical understanding of God's oracles, His prophecies, His promises, His covenants that the Jews had themselves. And God has given that to us. Oh, Christian, read your Old Testament. Read it with a good hermeneutic and read it accurately. So privileged today that we have it. We remember the causes of our alienation, separation, exclusion, estrangement because we were Gentiles. So what? What's that do to us? That brings us, number three, to remember the consequence of alienation. So what did this do? Being excluded and estranged and separated, what what did that do to us? Look at the last phrase in verse 12. This is the summary. Having no hope and without God in the world. Those are almost synonymous. It's a summary of the consequences of our alienation. These two statements are related and progressive. We have no hope because we're without God in the world. Now, Gentiles had no hope because they were without God But the problem was not that Gentiles then and now had no God. They had idols. We have our own today. The real problem is they did not and they do not have the true God of the Bible without the Bible. First Peter one three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. The Bible tells us Jesus was raised from the dead and that's exactly where Peter goes next. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have hope because of Christ. We have Christ because of the Jewish scriptures giving us and predicting Christ. Galatians 4.8, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature were, are no gods. You worshiped things, you gave your time, attention, money, focus to things that weren't gods. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.5, don't act in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's pretty incredible. The consequence of alienation, 
of not being a Jew, being alienated from God because he were not a part of the covenant people and promised people, the consequence of that for the people to whom Paul is writing is they had no hope. Oh, they would shift it to political forces and to doctors, and, but there was no hope for eternity and they were without God in the world. They were atheists to the true and living God even though their houses were full of idols and false gods. It's interesting if you play it out and we don't have time to do this today but there are very few extant Jews who believe the truthfulness of the scriptures that they have. Very few. We were far off. So what? Remember the remedy for alienation. Remember the remedy for alienation. But now, when's now? Now that you've placed your faith in Christ, now that you're a believer, Gentile, now, but now, in Christ, you who formerly were far off. That's us. That's our description. That's our resume. Formerly, Gentiles were far away from Christ, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Being brought near is not special to anyone unless you realize how far away you are. Notice the strong language, but now in Christ. Gentile believers are no longer alienated because of the gospel. And the last phrase of verse 13 is key, by the blood of Christ. We weren't brought near to God because Jesus bled. I've bled a lot in my life and I'm still alive. This doesn't mean that Jesus just bled. It meant he died. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Look across the page at Ephesians 3.11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, in whom we have boldness and confident access. How? Through faith, in him. A believer, Jew or Gentile, should never find themselves drifting beyond the shadow of the cross of Christ's death for, for our sins, for bringing us to himself from afar. Why does the death of Christ bring us near? Well, well that, that's, that's for next time, but this is a, we've talked about this, especially in the book of Mark. This is one of those hinge verses. 
A hinge verse is interesting. It's a verse that, that functions as the conclusion to the three verses we just looked at and the introduction to the next section. So can you, can you just cheat a little bit? Keep going. Verse 14, Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself, remember, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, not he gave peace. He himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity. We're enemies with each other, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. There it is again. By it, having put to death, being enemies or the enmity. You know, Romans chapter 3, we studied this. Paul asks an interesting question. He says, what advantage has the Jew... It's a good question. What, what advantage has a Jew? We just saw three, four bullet points there. But he asks, what advantage has a Jew? And he sums it all up. Or what, what's the benefit of circumcision, he says? This is his answer, Romans 3, 2. Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. He's reconciled those who had the word of God, the Jews, with the Gentiles who did not have the Older Testament revelation and put us together. And now, now we have a one Bible. We have all that God would say, all that God has said. Because the Gentiles were not privy to the advantages that God granted the Jews. The Gentiles were far off from God and the cross brought them near at that moment of salvation, they didn't need to understand every nuance of Old Testament theology. They just needed to understand that the, the Messiah, the Old Testament Savior, is the only Savior. And then back up from that to understand the covenants of promise that lead us to confirm who Jesus is. The difference in nearness to God create, and, and farness from God created a dividing wall both physically and spiritually. We'll look at that dividing wall next week. There was literally one in the temple, but there was also a cultural one that we need to talk about as well between the Jews and the Gentiles. And God, however, made provision to bring the Gentiles near to himself. Our, listen, to a Gentile. This is, this is amazing news. Incredible news. He brought a supernatural union between Jew and Gentile who believe the gospel that he's going to explain in verses 14 to 18. But here's the principle. Don't, don't miss the principle. You had different factions with different ideologies, different worldviews, different cultural nuances, different um, uh, backgrounds, different diets, different dress. They had differences that the gospel overcame. So do we, that may or may not include Jew and Gentiles, but it could include vax and non-vaxxers, mask and no-maskers, libertarians and subjectivists. If we, I, 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 this is specifically targeted at our heart, 
if we allow those extra biblical convictions and we afford them the same conviction as we give our theology and our doctrine, we will experience division in our church. You know what the heart of all that discussion is? Self-worship and trying to avoid heaven. Well, I'm not anxious to leave this life. I, 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 want, I like vaccines and I, I, I like penicillin. I, I get, I, that's all great. But if our highest value is staying on this planet as long as we can and not being faithful, even if it means taking our life, our, our plumb line's off. What are your highest values? Biblical or medical? Cultural or biblical? What are your highest convictions tied to? Oh, my dearly beloved friends, Mission Road, would to God that our passions and convictions, that our vocalizations and our arguments, our defenses and our explanations would be about God and his theology and his word, not what medical advice we read on Facebook. Are you a critic who generates disunity or are you a biblical lover who generates peace and cooperation in the church? Are you more vocal and passionate about vaccine mandates than you are about the mandate to preach the gospel to everyone you know? We may not be navigating a Jew-Gentile division, but we are definitely navigating judgmental dispositions about others in the church. And I'm praying that God sheds that from our dispositions. Three quick takeaways, okay? Number one, remember your situation before and after Christ. If you're a Gentile, this is directly to us. Remember your situation before and after Christ. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, remember your testimony. Remember what God did to you, for you, in the gospel. That's more important than anything that would cause divisions. Secondly, Remember the cost of being brought near. The cost of being brought near is what? The death of the Son of God. That's the cost. And if we ever stop being amazed by that, we will be persuaded to have convictions that compete with that and they're not biblical. And then third... Remember that Jesus brings more unity than any issue can ever bring division. That's encouraging. Jesus brings more unity than any issue can bring or threaten division in the church. I would beg you, don't let scientific or social opinions be more important than loving your fellow believers Pretty practical stuff, huh? I think Paul would say, what caused division in that church? The Jew-Gentile separation. What causes it in yours? Deal with it. The principles are the same. You go back to the gospel.